Hi, I'm Jill. And I'm Ashley. Welcome to Poverty Pitfalls and the Price of Diapers. Hi, Ashley. Hi. We have a <laughs> fun guest on today, Jim McDonald with the United Way. He's kind of my go-to, um, please educate me on things kind of guy. <laughs> yes. He's got yeah. so much experience and he's been with the same organization for so long that you just kind of know all the ins and outs and all the players and I he's probably, obviously well read on the subject. <laughs> yeah. I might've known that on some level, but I, if I did, I had forgotten. That is phenomenal. I think to be with the same place for that long. Um, it's pretty impressive. And clearly he has a passion for what he does and for helping people and for the work that he does. So that's really cool. And I miss our pre-pandemic, um, Jim and I would have our meetings on the trolley trail walking together to get a little movement and sunshine in. Um, I miss those. So hopefully we can get back to those one of these days. Um, yeah, that sounds really cool. Yeah. So we hope you guys enjoy Jim McDonald. Uh, I'm Jim, and 55 years ago, I started my life in diapers. Awesome. Hi, Jim. Hi. <laughs> How are you? Good. Good. Um, Tell us, I, I want to talk a little bit about your, what you do now and your current work, but first, can you tell us a little bit about just about you, your early life and you know, what was like, what life was like for you growing up and kind of how you got where you are now? Sure. Yeah. So, um, I, um, was, uh, born in and grew up in Somerville, New Jersey, uh, kind of a small suburban community, uh, halfway between New York and Philadelphia. And I was one of uh, three boys uh, in an Irish Catholic uh, household. I um, feel like I had a very blessed upbringing. Um, had a mom and a dad. Um, we were financially secure. Um, I got a good education. And um, uh, just, yeah, you know, count my blessings even to this day for uh, the childhood that I had. That's awesome. Did you get a, uh, along well with your brothers? Um, yes, uh, but you know, probably like many sibling relationships, um, we, uh, I think we got along better as we got older. Um, so we're better friends now than we were probably as teenagers. Uh, but yeah, we had, we always had a pretty good relationship. That's good. And how did you end up in Kansas city then? I was in an internship program, uh, with United way of America. And, uh, after one year of that program, they helped, uh, participants find a job at a local United way. And that's what brought me to Kansas city. I came to work at the United way here in Kansas city in 1989. So you've been with United way, like from the get go. Yes. Yeah. I wouldn't People ask me about my career strategy. It, it essentially is summed up by saying that I started as an intern and never left. <laughs> That's impressive. A lot of people don't do that anymore. That's really, yeah. really yeah. impressive. Wow. And you've worked your way up quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Tell us, tell us a little bit about your work at United Way now and like what, you know, what, what still excites you about going to work every day and the work that you're doing? Sure. Yeah, so I'm um, at United Way. I serve as the chief impact officer. 
where I essentially lead uh, the community impact team, which is responsible for United Way's grant making and community partnerships. And uh, I feel very blessed to get the job that I do because we're involved in uh, kind of um, the, you know, vetting and investing in, uh, you know, solutions to community challenges. Um, and we're also a kind of a, a collaborative partner uh, with many of the organizations that United Way provides funding to. So we get to, you know, work on, you know, important issues that get to the, you know, heart of the quality of life uh, for people in Kansas City, especially the most vulnerable. So low income households um, or, you know, uh, people who've experienced trauma in their lives um, or people who don't have, you know, haven't had the same um, equal access to opportunity growing up. Um, and there are, you know, there are gaps uh, in opportunity um, and outcomes mm -hmm. uh, as a result. Um, and so uh, I just feel, you know, really appreciative that I get to do the, the work that I do every day. Um, you probably get to really see a good big picture view of poverty and needs overall in Kansas City and the work that you do. Um, and I would just with all of your connections, I would think that would be really eye opening um, in, in the work that you do. Is that true? Yes, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Eye opening in lots of ways. You know, mm -hmm. it's it, it, it's uh, at time, you know, we have a perspective that at times can, um, you know, m make it challenging on some days to keep a positive outlook uh, because of how, you know, significantly, um, you know, the the. Um, the deck is stacked against, you know, too many people in our community. Uh, but then, you know, that's balanced by uh, getting to interact with, you know, the folks on the front lines who are doing incredible work, uh, mm -hmm. you know, making a difference in people's lives, like the folks at Happy Bottoms mm -hmm. um, and other organizations. Um, so, yeah, it's a, definitely a unique perspective that we get to have just by virtue of all the different uh, kinds of connections to different kinds of organizations. Yeah, and I would you mentioned it a little bit earlier. I would I would imagine, or actually, I'm not sure I can imagine not taking home some of that work and some of the things that you see and hear every day, and just thinking, you know, how can I? <laughs> if I have to hear another story, like I'm sure it gets very depressing, and you've got to take care of yourself a lot to to really not let that drag you down. Um, what do you do to help to help with that? Yeah, um, probably just, you know, uh, the time that I, I spend with family, you know, my daughter and my, my husband and our extended family and um, kind of the, uh, you know, the, the chosen family that we have in our friends uh, and neighbors, um, you know, get, getting that time with them is, um, you know, both a reminder of all the things I have to feel, you know, thankful and happy about, um, but also a good distraction uh, for, you know, um, you know, what can be kind of a dark picture, frankly, when you look at the conditions and not only in our community, but across the country. Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, so yeah, that, you know, the, the people in my life um, and the connections that I've made and, and getting uh, to spend time uh, with the people that matter to me. That's is, awesome. Is pretty key. So when and how did you learn about poverty? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I've had an awareness of it, I think, my whole life. I think, you know, the, the field that I uh, ended up in, you know, after college um, doing this work in health and human services um, was informed in large part by my, you know, uh, the, the really early parts of my life when I got to learn about poverty 
And I would have to give a lot of credit to my mom and dad, uh, as well as um, the, the teachers I had going to school, you know, starting from elementary school. Um, when I was, I, I went to Catholic school in the early year, like all throughout my education, I went to Catholic school. And there's a um, strong emphasis in the Catholic tradition um, on social justice and, you know, connecting the dots between a person's faith and kind of uh, how they make their way in their world um, and how they, you know, pay attention, you know, kind of to needs in the world. And, and so from the earliest days, um, remember learning about uh, poverty in school in a formal way. Um, and then that was sort of connected to um, action, you know, simple age appropriate kind of action like, you know, collecting donations. Uh, I remember we had this thing called the missions uh, when I was in elementary school and we would collect money for missions, you know, I guess mission, you know, uh, activity, mission related activities and, you know, usually in other countries, but not always. Um, one uh, kind of domestic kind of exposure to poverty was just sort of a, an awakening for me that, oh yeah, poverty isn't just a, this thing that exists in other countries. Uh, but it was when a time uh, when my, my parents, I think it was my mom and our next door neighbor, um, they arranged for our families to do kind of a, a adopt a family, um, you know, project uh, for a low income family in New York City. We lived a short drive uh, out, you know, uh, from New York City. Um, and uh, so I remember, you know, we had done the work of, you know, I don't know, taking up a collection and purchasing items and bringing, and this was back in the old days when the way that um, holiday related donation drives, um, it, you know, uh, involved, um, I mean, if it, in retrospect, it was a little bit exploitative because you would deliver, you know, the, uh, you know, the holiday basket, so to speak, uh, to the. Right. Directly family. to the family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where they didn't have any role in choosing what was in it. You know, you probably right. got information about what the ages of their kids were and, you know, and the genders and that kind of thing. But uh, it was it was very much a um, uh, um, I'm trying to think of the right word for it, but it's not the way that we do it now, um, where it's more empowering and people have a you know greater voice and agency in terms of accessing, um, you know, charitable resources. Um, and so but I'll, I'll never forget the you know, on the car ride into New York City. And you know, it was a neighborhood we had never been to before where the poverty you know, was evident. Um, but I was also struck by just the, um, you know, I mean, again, this is through the, the eyes of a, a, and the memory of a, memories of a six-year-old child, but like in, interpreting that memory, it's sort of like the sense of neighborhood and family and community that existed um, in this low-income neighborhood where we, you know, brought the donations. Um, and uh, so that was just, um, it was a, just a very distinct memory I had all throughout my life. Um, and I've referenced back to it many times since then, um, as you know, and, and now kind of come to see it kind of as, you know, it, it, an inspiration of sorts. I mean, it wasn't a direct inspiration, um, but, but uh, an inspiration of sorts. And, 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 it, and it very much um, goes to the answer to, you know, of your question about how did I learn about poverty and how did I get exposed to it? It sounds like it was very impactful, obviously, and your, you know, just your childhood as a whole, but that particular event has stuck with you. Yeah. And yeah, it has. And I, you know, I think one thing I would add to it is that, you know, just a kind of an appreciate a lifelong appreciation that grew as I grew got older that um, I didn't have to grapple, you know, with poverty myself, um, nor did my family, my immediate family, but I had uh, you know, some extended family who did. And so I remember, um, 
you know, distinctly on um, a couple of occasions when I was a kid, um, uh, when my mom's sister would had had to come to stay with us with her young son uh, because of poverty that she was dealing with. And so, um, you know, I, I don't I don't think I thought of it as the reason I, you know, I, it was for me, it was fun. My cousin moved in and my aunt moved in who I loved. Um, but, it, you know, it didn't take long into adulthood to realize, oh, wow, they had to do that because they were struggling financially. Um, so, you know, again, while it didn't affect me or my immediate family, I, I had a little bit of a line of sight of its, uh, the impacts, um, of financial insecurity on, you know, people that I loved. Yeah. Wow. So we are all leaders in some way. Can you tell us how you're a leader and if there was a defining point or person that led to that? Sure. Yeah. So, no, I agree with your thought that we're all leaders in some way. Um, and um, I think for me, you know, the, I think if I were to generalize the way that I'm a leader, the kind of that common thread in all parts of my life, whether it's work or my volunteer engagement in the community um, or just as a part of a network of friends, um, I think the one common element is, you know, and this is going to sound a little bit trite, but I, I, I believe it deeply, is that I have this um, sort of aspect of my character where I can, you know, kind of see and recognize the, the thing that's great in any person. You know, I think there's something that makes all of us great in a unique way. And I think there's a tendency in the society that we live in to kind of like discard people, um, you know, for one reason or another, including, you know, whether they're up, up to a particular challenge or task or job or opportunity. And um, it's essential, I think, in a, in a good leader to, to be able to, um, you know, know people and then have an instinct for what makes that person unique. And, um, and you know, I use this phrase great rather intentionally, like there is a greatness in all of us um, and um, ways that, um, you know, we are uh, talented or skilled in a way that maybe the person next to us isn't. Um, so I think being able to identify the greatness um, in any member of a team um, is something that makes me a leader. Um, and then being able to sort of like, you know, tap into that aspect of them that makes them great and connect them and leverage that, you know, skill set or talent or, um, you know, uh, character trait, um, you know, especially when it's one that I don't have myself. Um, so I'd say in a general way, that's kind of how I see myself as a leader. Um, and then help me out with the second part of your question. Oh, was there a defining point or a person that yeah. you think led to that? Person. Yeah. Right. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. But, but wait, know, I have to, I, I do want to say real quick, sorry to interrupt. I think that is, that is such an, just an invaluable skill almost because it is hard, especially in this day and age. So many people just focus on the negative or see the, you know, the, the hard things. And I think it's really hard to look at that. You're right. You're absolutely right. We all have greatness. Um, or maybe that's an area I need to improve in. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think, um, that's a, I just love that. I love that, that you mentioned that as one of your, your strengths and being a leader and something that you excel at. That's, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. I appreciate your saying that Jill. And, you know, mm -hmm it kind of sounds like a platitude, you know, until you have a chance to dig into its meaning. Um, but yeah, it's something that I pride myself on and that I'm grateful for because it, uh, you know, it, it would, uh, it would be harder to get things done. You know, if I feel like, you know, if I didn't, you know, have that, uh, have that attribute, have that skill set. 
Um, you know, in terms of uh, if I could point, there are a lot of people I could point to in my life who sort of helped me to kind of recognize, um, you know, uh, my leadership capabilities, um, you know, throughout my career, you know, like folks who gave me opportunities that, you know, I didn't necessarily pursue um, because I didn't necessarily think I was up to the challenge. Very grateful to them. Um, and, uh, and there's probably, you know, probably about a three or four of them uh, who I can point to who sort of like given me opportunities and I rose to the challenge and, and just super grateful um, all, all during my career, um, you know, the organization I work for now. Um, and then I think, um, you know, obviously in school, you know, like there's that teacher that, you know, saw something in you that, um, you know, that you didn't necessarily see yourself um, and task you with a, you know, a, a challenge or an assignment or a project um, where you had to, you know, kind of, uh, you know, either prove that you did or didn't, you know, have that, uh, that skill set. And um, so, yeah, so I can think of one high school teacher I had in particular um, and, and then, you know, probably half a dozen or more, um, during different points in my education, um, uh, where a teacher inspired me or an educator inspired me. That's really cool. You should let them know that. <laughs> yeah, good point. You know, it's funny. I was, one of them is, uh, Sister Joseph Catherine, uh, who Aww. I had in, uh, I think I had her in my sophomore year of high school for, I, you know, some kind of religion class and right. I, I went to a Catholic high school and I Googled her, you know, one day not long ago to first to see if she was still alive. And I was shocked to see how close in age she was to me. <laughs> <laughs> this one was probably in her twenties when she oh was teaching me God. as a 16 year old. And I don't know, I just had this idea that she'd be 90 and she's not, she's in her sixties. Oh. She's alive and well, and I probably should reach out to her. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. That's awesome. Shout out to her. I love it. That was in the days when nuns wore habits and the nuns, the brand of nuns who taught me, they had the, the habit on their heads. So you couldn't see their hair. They didn't oh, wear wow. makeup. So yeah. Was there a ruler? Estimating a nun's age. <laughs> right. No, <small> task. <laughs> no definitely not. Oh my gosh. Um, so why do you think some of us end up in a pile of it and some of us get out clean? Yeah, that I, you know, you shared that question in advance and I spent a lot of time mulling it over and I don't know that I have a good answer other than uh, it, that it's multiple reasons, right? Like I think, uh, you know, luck um, and then the different ways that we can talk about luck because really luck, you know, I'm not sure how much of a real thing luck is, but uh, privilege, you know, I mean, you know, I had so much given to me from the earliest part of my life um, in the way of opportunity and resources. And so I think um, the, you know, the accumulating, the accumulated impact of what we're given um, throughout our lives uh, that we didn't have to work for necessarily, or we didn't have to work that hard for or work as hard for the next person over um, has a lot to do uh, with why I've been able to you know, I've, I've certainly ended up in a pile of it on numerous occasions in my life, but I've had what it took to get out of it. Um, and a lot of that is just because of what I've been blessed with, um, you know, if I'm being real about it. And mm -hmm. then beyond that, if I'm going to give myself any credit, um, you know, it, I think it is just this, you know, I, I work hard to have a sense of gratitude, you know, in, in, in my life and just mm -hmm. let that drive my decisions as much as possible. Um, that's easier you know, to do on some days and others. Um, and then, um, you know, I would probably point to just, you know, per persistence and, you know, tolerance for, uh, 
you know, the mundane or the repetitive, like, you know, at the end of the day, just making it through this life, you know, <laughs> takes repetition of some key things that aren't that interesting. And you have to really be committed to doing, you know, the small stuff over and over again. Uh, and if you get bored of it too easily, then, you know, that's when you get off on the wrong path and you might end up, you know, um, in a situation that you, you wouldn't, you know, cho have chosen for yourself. Um, so, so just true. being able to like put, put your nose to the grindstone is the, the best way that I can think of putting it into a, a platitude. Mm -hmm. That's so true. Um, what do you value most? Um, I think I would have to say family and friends, you know, I'm, I'm sure everybody says that, but it really is true. It's like, the and, and to maybe say in a slightly different way, uh, the connections that we have, you know, it's like um, this, the last two years in particular, you know, without the, um, you know, the, the relationships that I have in my life um, and the, the number of them that are deep relationships um, that I could, you know, look to and, you know, draw from um, in, in terms of making it through, you know, COVID. And I've been lucky I haven't gotten COVID myself, um, but, you know, we've all had to deal with the consequences of it in one form or another. And so, um, you know, the connections I have with other people, whether it's, you know, my my husband and my daughter, first and foremost, um, but then, you know, friends that I've had for 30 or 40 or, you know, even dare I say it, 53 mm -hmm. years, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, at the top of the list. Um, but then just, you know, other connections that I get uh, in the course of my daily life that maybe aren't people I see a lot or have the, the deepest friendships with. But, you know, I one of the things I love about this job that I'm in is I get to meet people like you all and like <laughs> connect with you on a regular basis and like really awesome people who are doing incredible things in the world to make it a better place. And like, what a blessing that is. Um, so uh, I'd say that's what I value those connections with other people. That's awesome. Have you noticed again, because I do feel like you've got this kind of great bird's eye view of um, you know, the nonprofit scene for lack of a better word in Kansas city, have you noticed um, burnout across the board or just extra stress across the board on everybody? You know, you talk about how you've, um, you know, you value those relationships and you've been very thankful for them over the past couple of years during COVID. Um, and I think that even, well, I just, I just think that it's been harder for people to connect. So on top of that, you know, we're also just dealing with the compounding stress of this thing that keeps going on and on and on. And, um, you know, I know we don't have a, a, what's the ball you can look crystal ball to look into, to see what, what the effects are going to be, you know, long-term, but I'm just curious if you've seen something kind of globally in the Kansas city area and the work that you're doing. Oh yeah. Without question. You know, I think you really hit on something there. Um, you know, in my work at United Way, uh, I've, we, I've been a part of um, some pandemic themed um, grant making in collaboration with the Community Foundation and Mark and LISC and, and a bunch of foundations who contributed to a, a shared pool of resources. So as a part of that uh, grant making effort, we've um, very intentionally heard from uh, nonprofit organizations throughout the metro. Um, about the impact on the people that are that make up their organization, um, you know, in the course of making choices about where to deploy these resources. Um, I, you know, in my day-to-day -day work, uh, one initiative that we've been a part of since really since 
COVID first hit is an effort to prevent as many evictions as possible in the community. Mm -hmm. Cause you know, there's a, we were at a eviction as a, as a, as an institution, you know, losing your housing in the legal system because you either couldn't pay your rent or you had a landlord who wasn't treating you well or a combination of the two. Um, that was at crisis levels before uh, COVID hit. Um, but COVID has only exacerbated its, exacerbated its impacts, um, mm -hmm. and we haven't seen the worst of it. That's still coming, um, partly because there was a, a moratorium on evictions for a period of time right. that, that prevented a lot of evictions, not all of them, but a lot of them. Um, and so we've been really fortunate to be a part of a collaborative effort where United Way is in partnership with the area legal aid uh, programs um, on an effort to, again, prevent as many evictions as possible. And so I, you know, work day to day with a team of um, social workers um, here at United Way who are assisting households, um, you know, in that predicament, getting access to federal um, financial assistance and then getting connected to an attorney. And so I'll deal with, I'll work with the um, social workers and the attorneys. And um, it is work that yeah, takes a toll on the people who do it, you know, because they have to hear, the, um, you know, really tragic stories, you know, told to them over and over again, just in the course of doing their job. Um, fortunately, they're a part of this really great solution or at least partial solution to the predicaments that people are in. So that's a positive. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm uh, I try to be mindful of the kind of um, psychic toll that that takes, um, you know, kind of that's that idea of um, secondary trauma. Um, you know, the people in the social services field um, experience, um, you know, by virtue of he hearing and helping people who are in crisis. Um, so very much aware of that uh, impact. I, I think it's probably true in most communities, but I, it's especially true here in Kansas City. And, um, you know, and that is having an impact on kind of, you know, it's translating into the workforce issues for organizations when it comes to hiring and retaining qualified mm -hmm. people. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely an issue. I would definitely affirm what, you, you know, it seems like what you've already, you know, um, identified. Um, and then I would say making sure that people are treated, you know, um, with appreciation and with fairness um, and with, um, you know, just I, I try to show our appreciation for the team of folks that are helping us with this work as much as possible um, and, and recognize that, you know, how challenging it is, especially for the folks on the front lines, um, making sure that they're compensated fairly um, and that they're, you know, that they're earning, you know, uh, what they're worth or as, at least as close to possible of what they're worth um, are all key things. Yeah. What can people in Kansas City who don't know much about poverty in Kansas City or um, the situations that lead, you know, I, I think a lot of people just think, you know, oh, go get a job like anybody could do it. Right. And we yeah. know that that's a very stereotypical, not how this works. Yeah. <laughs> um, what, you know, are there resources for people who want to learn or be better educated? And I'm totally putting you on the spot. Like are, you know, are there resources out there that people can check out to like learn more about poverty in Kansas city and, you know, even all the great things United way does and, you know, sure. every, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I definitely, I would say they could sign up for United ways, you know, uh, Facebook feed and Twitter feed, all, all of our social media platforms, sign up for our email list. Um, we do push out content that relates to this question as a part of our work. Um, United Way offers uh, periodic uh, poverty simulations, um, which are just you know a, a two hour opportunity to 
kind of dig in deep um, about the facets of poverty and how it shows up in our community specifically. Um, we, over the last couple of years, we've been offering them the poverty simulations. We've been offering them uh, virtually. So um, someone could reach out to me for information on how to sign up for an upcoming one, for sure. Um, and then there's, you know, there's so much that's written on the topic. And so I would encourage people, you know, they, I don't know, you know, like, just to take the topic of eviction. Um, for example, uh, there's this really awesome book um, called Evicted, uh, written by a, a researcher uh, named Matthew Desmond, who is, um, you know, taken the time in recent years to really study the many facets of eviction and how it shows up differently in different communities and the kind of impacts it has. He tells the, it's, it's packed full of, you know, sort of academic, you know, uh, sort of, um, um, uh, understandings of the issue, but he also uh, tells, shares that information through the, the lens of individual real life people's stories. And so mm -hmm. it's a great read if someone wants to learn more specifically about the issue of eviction. Mm -hmm. um, and then when it comes to just, you know, sort of tracking the issue, like right now, you know, we are, um, you know, on the brink of some really sort of once in a generation um, policy change opportunities um, if the Build Back Better Act passes. Um, mm -hmm. It's been trying to make its way through Congress. And, you know, at this point, I think it's an open question whether it will pass or not. But if it does, um, it will do, you know, incredible um, things uh, to change the trajectory uh, for low-income families, including, you know, instituting universal pre-K, um, expanding the housing voucher program, um, and uh, providing childcare subsidies that would make, you know, work feasible for, um, you know, for example, for a single parent um, with children um, in ways that for many, in many cases, it's not feasible today. Um, yeah. And so uh, there are, you know, lots of uh, great organizations who track that issue. Um, United Community Services um, of Johnson County here locally is an organization that follows this issue and takes policy positions and is involved on the front lines and addressing you know, solutions um, to the challenge. Uh, a, a national organization I would point to is the uh, National uh, Center for, uh, but, oh, gosh, I'm gonna mangle the name, the National Center for Policy and Budget Priorities, I believe is the name of the organization. Um, there's kind of a statewide affiliate of that entity, both in um, Missouri and Kansas. Um, and so they're tracking, you know, what's going on at the legislative level, um, you know, in both states. Um, so yeah, lots of ways to learn and deepen your understanding of the issue. It is it is tempting to say, oh yeah, right now we have you know all of these uh, open positions, um, you know that aren't getting filled, and you know it's contributing to supply chain challenges and all sorts of other things. So if someone you know isn't working, they should just go get one of those jobs, and their their conditions will improve. And um, you know, I mean, that's probably the topic for an entirely other podcast about why <laughs> we could talk for three hours about yeah, that, right? About why that's an oversimplification mm -hmm. um, of the problem. Absolutely, um, it really is, and it's interesting. Um, I talked with Ashley in a podcast we did earlier this year about how you know I certainly didn't realized that when I was younger and seeing families, you know, living in poverty and it really took until happy bottoms before I understand, understood the depths and the ins and outs. And I'm still learning. I still have so much to learn. Um, so it's, you know, there's, yeah, we were, we were talking about that this morning. We're like, we just need a whole new system. It just <laughs> needs, yeah. you know, well, it's one thing to figure out, you know, the overwhelming nature of the problem, but then to provide a solution that meets the problem in a way that helps yeah. people, it doesn't hurt people yeah. and gives them, you know, a sense of pride and being helped. Um, so that was going to be my question for you was with all of the programs and um, nonprofits you've worked with, has there been a particular 
program or approach that you that really stood out to you that you just thought was really successful and why was that and then how does the united way determine where to allocate its resources and are there particular parameters for sure. which organizations you choose to partner with yeah sure um so you know i i think the first thing that comes to mind in regard to that question is uh the extent to which there are um so many programs and organizations that take kind of a, a holistic approach um, or a two-generation approach. Um, it's the, the organizations and programs that really, um, you know, kind of, um, you know, kind of uh, support, uh, particularly programs designed for low-income families that support the families in ways that cut across the different life domains, um, either because the program itself is holistic. I think about the work of the early learning providers um, who are also providing, you know, case management and financial assistance and after school programming, you know, it's not just a place you can go to get daycare for your, your child, but you can also uh, have them seen by a nurse or you can have that, you know, you can get food from their food pantry. Um, you know, so those kind of uh, programs that are doing holistic work, um, you know, really seem to make um, some of the greatest impact. And it's not just when they're, um, you know, doing it all themselves. I mean, a lot of it is just the result of collaboration, you know, like Operation Breakthrough, for example, like, you know, they're relying on you all for diapers, right. you know, and they're relying on Children's Mercy Hospital to come run a clinic on site. And they're, you know, they're in partnership with Literacy Kansas City when it comes to like, you know, helping uh, the moms that they serve uh, to get their high school diploma or their GED. Um, so a lot of times it isn't just, you know, um, you know, uh, a single program or organization that, that does that wraparound set of services, but it's a careful, um, you know, collaboration or curation of those wraparound services uh, done across multiple programs or organizations. So it's the ones that, that have figured that formula out um, that I think are the most impactful. Um, and for United Way, I mean, you know, we, I mean, on a, at, a, at a baseline level, we try to um, only provide funding to organizations that we know are gonna be around, you know, you know, into the future. And so, you know, we have a, a set of um, standards of accountability that, you know, that look at an organization's financial health, their governance, um, you know, all those things that an organ any organization would need to have in place regardless of the kind of programming. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't take risks. United Way it has a long history of funding startup organizations or newer organizations and, and, and definitely many, many small kind of more grassroots organizations. Um, but then by virtue of getting funding from United Way there, you know, there it's, it's prompting them to review that checklist of, um, you know, we have 28 standards of accountability that that they uh, they get vetted against. Um, and so that that drives a lot of how we make our grant making. And then, you know, periodically, you know, we'll look at community need and identify, you know, a limited set of things that are priorities um, in recent years that has really been a focus around poverty. Um, and then we've selected. Uh, programs um, that are addressing poverty, you know, in one one regard or another, um, in deciding who to fund uh, among those organizations. Awesome. I, I love, I've I've Go just ahead. been so impressed with the way that Kansas City nonprofits work together. Like you say, I mean, I'm sure that there's still more we can do, but we can network, share resources. Even in my role as a marketing person, I've been able to reach out to other nonprofits who aren't really in the same you know, line that we're in necessarily, but they will, are willing to share their knowledge of how to help us. And I just think it's really awesome that we can not only collaborate and, you know, bring our services together to provide more help, but also just help each other in running the organization and becoming more efficient and becoming more successful just to, to make the most difference. Yeah, 100% agree with that. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I'm going to go back to kind of your first question, Ashley, and Jim, your answer. So something we've been talking a lot about the past, I don't know, couple months is um, really, are we ever going to be able to put an end to diaper need for the need, you know, but ultimately it has led to some short-term and immediate things that we can do, which is do better at um, eliminating barriers to service. So, you know, all the paperwork and and stuff like that. So we're reevaluating everything we do there. Um, But I think also we're having conversations of what is, you know, we typically do 50 diapers. We know that's not enough anymore. That was based on a study in 2012. So um, we've been testing a program where families get as many as they need. And I think, you know, obviously that's quite a bit more expensive, but what is, what's really the long-term impact that's going to have? And we're kind of looking at that and measuring that. Um, And then always the age old question of, you know, why do, how do we help a family before they're in dire need, right? Before they're in the choice where they have to make a choice between buying a diaper or paying for a bill. Like let's help families before they get to that point. And is that anything that you're seeing or hearing conversations of across the board in terms of services or still, I mean, I know those things probably pop up, but any, any big trends you're seeing, I guess, is the, the question of my long ramble. Yeah, no, I I think you really hit at the heart of it. Um, And, you know, I think the answer to that is yes. I mean, there are a lot of, um, uh, you know, conversations and important work being done around kind of root cause issues that are, um, you know, the manifestation of which, you know, is uh, things like not having the ability to, you know, not having enough diapers for my newborn or, you know, and their older siblings. Um, and, you know, I think probably, um, at the risk of, um, looking as if I'm sort of putting this off into the hands, uh, out of the hands of the social service professionals and into the hands of the policymakers and the elected officials, um, you know, at the root of all, you know, maybe not all at the root of many of these challenges is just the issue of, um, income inequality. You know, the fact that, you know, low-income uh, workers, because I think, you know, you could probably affirm that, you know, the vast majority of, you know, low-income households um, are working households, right? Like, you know, the, the days of, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to be careful about my terminology here, but I'll just say that in the wake of uh, w- welfare reform implemented by uh, Congress in the late 1990s, during when Bill Clinton was president, um, I mean, it's such an awful, it's such a misnomer, uh, this idea of welfare reform, uh, because that, that legislation created more problems than it solved, in, in my opinion. And um, so the number, my point being, the numbers of people who receive you know, cash welfare assistance um, who are not working is, you know, a really tiny fraction of the number of low-income households. Um, and that was by design. Um, and um and what what the reason that that welfare reform legislation failed so miserably, in addition to like reducing the amount of resources that get put into cash assistance, is that the vision for um, you know kind of the workforce uh, component of the initiative um, really never came to fruition. So we do not have adequate pathways uh, for low-income um, adults, especially the low-income adults with children. Uh, to make it, uh, to get a a strong foothold in the workforce. Um, So what that ends up looking like is, you know, 
uh, intermittent periods of unemployment, um, which, which oftentimes results in, you know, periodic homelessness, you know, homelessness is not kind of a one-time thing that you get past. Like many people, you know, become homeless many times over the course of their life. Um, and it all goes back to income inequality. So public policy measures like increases in the minimum wage, which thankfully the voters of Missouri saw the wisdom of. And so we've had a multi-year, um, you know, path of increasing uh, the minimum wage. Uh, um, I think it's Ten dollars and this is around ten dollars an hour now, but it's headed to twelve dollars an hour over a period of time. Um, and so, for people at the bottom rung of earners, um, that helps them. Mm -hmm. um, programs like the Earned Income Tax Credit that put more, you know, cash at the end of the year, more cash in uh, the pockets of low-income workers uh, to, you know, to provide um, for their their families. Um, you know, and so there have been, you know, there's the Earned Income Tax Credit at the national level. Um, the state of Kansas has a modest earned income tax credit program of its own. And then it's in the, in the state of Missouri, it's just been a, an idea that has been floating out there for many years, uh, but hasn't come into fruition. So if we could institute an earned income tax credit in Missouri, it would have the effect of increasing incomes among low income households. Um, but it would be wrong of me to let this podcast end without sort of pointing to one of the most transformational things that's happened in the era of COVID, era of COVID and that was action by Congress um, to increase, to dramatically increase the child tax credit. Um, so right now, um, any family with a child is getting, um, you know, up until last month was getting monthly payments, which is essentially was an, an advance on the child tax credit that they will be entitled to come tax filing season. Um, I think they were uh, making advance payments equal to about half of the overall award. Um, this month they've stopped, um, but we'll be able to, the, anybody with a child will be able to claim the balance of the child tax credit, the expanded child tax credit that is due to them um, at tax filing time here in a couple of months. Um, and it's, it's been looked at by the experts and, uh, you know, time will tell because, you know, a lot of this data is looking ret uh, retrospectively. Um, but it's looking like the, the expanded child tax credit had the impact of reducing child poverty by somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 to 45% um, in, in the US. Um, wow. and, and it did that very simple, not by creating a bunch of new programs, but simply by putting more money in the pockets and the bank accounts um, of low income workers. Um, and you know, the, those kinds of strategies are the ones that ha stand to have the greatest impact. Um, you, you're well aware of the fact that you can't use um, uh, food stamps, the, the um, SNAP program benefits to purchase diapers, an mm -hmm. essential need for a low income household. Um, yep. You know, that policy needs to change. Yeah. Um, so, you know, those kind of like systems level policy, you know, you, you make one tweak to a public policy and you impact, you know, tens of thousands of lives, um, literally, you know, with, uh, with the stroke of a pen. Um, those are some of the kinds of, um, you know, uh, efforts that um, have the greatest potential to, you know, be game changers in the lives of the families that we serve. I love that. And just, I mean, this is why I love talking to you, Jim, because I always feel like I walk away with a big nugget that was right in front of my face, but I just couldn't see it. <laughs> like the income inequality. I mean, it's, it, it really does boil down to that and, um, and policy change. And so that also makes me feel really good. Um, you know, happy bottoms is teaming up with several other diaper banks in the state of Missouri, and we've, um, formed a state coalition and we're really trying to do some policy change work and, and get some things, um, awesome. updated on that front. So that's, that's exciting. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. 
but yeah, you're, I mean, it, it is, I think, you know, Julie Carmichael and you've seen her benefits. Mm-hmm. Cliff. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Ashley, we need to have Julie on here to talk about the benefits cliff to um, all of our listeners. Yeah. I mean, she does one of the best jobs of anyone around about uh, in, in very, uh, in, a, in a very efficient way, educating folks on what it means to, to live with low income mm-hmm. um, and, and to help people get their heads around, you know, why poverty can be so persistent. Um, right. So, yeah. Have you seen the Netflix show Made? M-A-I-D? Made? Not yet. No, but I have it uh, on my watch list. I, yeah, I need this. I I'll need be honest. Scene. I couldn't get past episode two because just when I started watching it, it was you know, winter, we're on what year, almost year three of COVID. I was like, this is just, I can't, (laughs) but it is a great um, demonstration, I think for the everyday person of like how, what, what it looks like to live in poverty and that you could be working your tail off and trying to do everything you can. And, and it's, and it's still just working against you. So. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I've really developed a deeper conviction about um, since we began our work in uh, eviction prevention uh, a year or so ago was um, the, or is the kind of the resourcefulness um, that so uh, many low-income households have in terms of, you know, how to make, how to effectively make ends meet um, and, um, and to, you know, uh, care for their children and um, to do so much um, you know, with such limited means, um, mm-hmm. and um, and the kind of you know problem-solving skills and prioritization, and uh, you know just overall resourcefulness that so many low-income families uh, have, and that that's kind of as much as anything why I think you know we just need to put you know more dollars in their pockets. Um, mm-hmm. We need to empower them to be earning more dollars for the work that right. they do because they're the best. Uh, you know, sort of arbiters of how to deploy those dollars, um, you know, to combat Absolutely. poverty or to make, you know, to, to make their way in the world. Absolutely. Well, Jim, this has been delightful and educational. And I thank you for taking time yeah. to talk with us today. Anything else you want to share? No, just thank okay. you, Jill. Thank you, Ashley. It was great yeah. to spend an hour with you and yeah. uh, appreciate that you're doing this work. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you for all the work that you do. It was really nice to meet you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Jim. Um, I I love Jim. (laughs) I wish he is. I wish we would have talked about his family a little bit too. They're just an adorable little family. Um, It's his daughter and husband. So did you learn anything new today, Ashley? Uh, Yeah. yeah. It's just, there's so much, so many resources out there that, we're all trying to do the right things, but maybe it just is as simple as we just need to give families more money. I, don't know. <laughs> I well, I think it's in. I mean, I'm going to be thinking about that because income inequality. I mean, really, if yeah, if everybody had the money they needed to survive, not even live in abundance, but to survive, what does that do to? you know, to change a lot, your attitude, your mood, your happiness, your, um, not as much struggle. Yeah. I, it's, it's interesting. Um, and policy, I just got to learn more about policy. I know I, it's a big bear, but I think there, it can make 
a lot more difference than we realize. Absolutely. They have so many resources and it's just making those connections and mm -hmm. finding the right person and putting a fire under under them. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Um, well, we hope you all enjoyed Jim and we'll see you next time. Bye.